Campaign 2022, welcome to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. If you were to drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, about halfway there, if you took a stop, you would be in California's 23rd Congressional District. This is a relatively new carve out district because of redistricting, but it's a it's a fascinating district nonetheless known as the high desert. And um, there's a pretty good general election matchup that is taking shape. And here to join us now is Derek Marshall. He won the Democratic primary uh, the other week. He is a openly gray progressive community organizer. He has also been um, something of uh, a community activist and uh, Derek joins us now. First of all, congratulations on your victory last week. Awesome, thanks so much, David. Uh, really, really happy to be on here. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your general election opponent and about this new district. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so my my opponent in in the race, we actually had two. Uh, we went up against uh, a city council uh, woman, Blanca Gomez, and then we also went up against uh, the big bad Republican uh, in the race, uh, Jay Obernolte. And uh, and the new twenty third congressional district is. Uh, it's it's really it, it's a doozy. It's huge. Uh, we have got the Victor Valley, so Victorville, Hesperia, Apple Valley. Uh, there's about 400,000 people there. Uh, if you hop in the car, you can head up the hill to to Big Bear, uh, Lake Arrowhead. Uh, if you go down the hill, we've got Joshua Tree and we've got Yucca Valley. And then if you go further down the hill, we've actually got a piece of South Redlands and and Loma Linda. So it's it's uh, it's absolutely huge. Uh, we've got a, a really unique race on our hands. It's a, a, a you know progressive uh, Democratic candidate going up against a Trump-backed Republican. Uh, in fact, uh, Trump actually endorsed uh, my opponent Jay Obernolte on the last day uh, of the election, and so uh, we've got a we've got a dogfight on our hands that I think is pretty unique. And for people who don't know, the top two finishers in the primary, whether they're of the same party or different parties, they go under the general election. So Obernolte and you uh, will battle it out uh, in November. Um, a big chunk of this district used to be represented under the old map by Kevin McCarthy, who is the top Republican in the US House. So how does somebody who is progressive try to make inroads in a district like this? Yeah, absolutely. So so first of all, the, the good thing for us is that the new 23rd Congressional District is, is, is completely different from the old 23rd Congressional District. Uh, and so, uh, what that means is is that the the district we used to be California eight, and so we've now we now have a new number. Uh, but the question you know that that stands is is how are we going to be able to uh, to defeat a a Trump backed Republican as a progressive? And I think that the answer to that, uh, and and part of the reason I think why I'm, why I'm on the show today, and and what a lot of uh, listeners and organizers and activists and and folks from uh, from the progressive movement uh, sort of agree is that this is our opportunity to to prove really what we've been preaching for a while, which is that we are probably uh, of if, of any of the the Democrats best able to uh, to flip. Uh, some of these districts, particularly in the rural and exurban areas. And the reason for that is, is that there is a lot of frustration. Uh, you know, we're frustrated uh, on this campaign because of a lot of the broken promises uh, that we see in Congress. And I think that, you know, we're probably in agreement here that a lot of the reasons uh, for these broken promises is because as nice as a candidate may be, as as amenable as we think that they are, at the end of the day, if you're accepting corporate donations, if you're accepting uh, corporate PAC money, then you're going to be in the back pocket uh, of the corporations. And I think that our campaign has has such strong legs right now because we've been able to effectively uh, communicate that message to voters out here. 
Yeah, certainly Obernolte is in the, um, you could argue is in the back pockets of his corporate donors. You're not taking any corporate PAC money. Uh, so and, and the contrast is clear on so many issues between a Trump backed candidate and a progressive. Um, what in your estimation is, is, I mean, and I know there's a lot of polling that progressives have done in this sort of election cycle to try to figure out what are some of the issues that really sort of resonated and cut through because there are so many, what are you prioritizing? Yeah, so so I think a lot of the you know a lot of the the key and core progressive priorities. So Medicare for all. Uh, we were reading a study yesterday that uh, there's an estimated 330,000 Americans uh, that would have uh, would still be alive today if we had passed a Medicare for all system. Uh, we would have saved 104 billion dollars. Uh, so Medicare for all is huge. Uh, jobs, uh, local jobs uh, through a community jobs guarantee like the Green New Deal. Uh, is something that would definitely benefit uh, the district. Uh, we have over 90,000 people that leave the high desert uh, every single day on three-hour round-trip commutes to work. Uh, median income is $24,000. We need uh, a Green New Deal, uh, particularly the community jobs guarantee component of it because it means jobs for the high desert. Uh, education, universal pre-K, uh, the list goes on. There, there's so many uh, bread and butter, uh, help your kitchen table budget policies that we can support. And again, because we are not bought and paid for by big corporations, we're able to uh, unabashedly advocate for these types of policies. Whereas uh, my opponent, uh, who's right in the back pocket of a of big pharma, uh, the oil uh, lobbyists and 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 uh, uh, oil and gas companies. It's just not going to to fight for that. And when we take a look uh, at his record, uh, voting against the CARES Act, voting against uh, any type of policy that would would benefit marginalized and working people, uh, the results are pretty clear. You worked uh, for the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020. You were a staffer. There's a little bit of news with Bernie Sanders and that it seems like he has let it be known to some of his staff that he is open. Uh, to running again in 2024 if President Biden decides not to run for re-election. And you know, the number of Democrats who are looking at a contingency plan, Bernie Sanders has made it very clear. He expects Joe Biden to run, he will support Joe Biden. But if Biden does not, Bernie Sanders looks like he's putting some of the pieces together. Do you think it would be wise for the progressive movement to have Bernie Sanders run again? Or should he hold back and, and try to sort of move his movement towards somebody who's who's younger? Look, I'm I'm not gonna uh, put words uh, into uh, into the the senator's mouth. Um, I you know personally, I think that we need to have progressives uh, in in power at every level of government uh, for exactly the same things that you know that that's so so important. Uh, it's the corporate donations, right? Uh, we cannot uh, dismantle the master's house uh, with the master's tools. And I think that when we take a look at how the system is currently rigged, it is it is benefiting. Uh, people that are not in fact actually people at all. Uh, they're benefiting the big corporations. And so what I really want to see is I wanna see progressives at every level of government. Um, I love Senator Sanders. Uh, I worked uh, tirelessly on his campaign. I was a super volunteer also in his, his 2016 run. Uh, and so I would love to see that energy uh, in the White House, um, but I'm not gonna put uh, words into his mouth. What are some of the things you learned from his campaign that you've incorporated into yours? That there is a progressive magic, uh, that there's an organizing, uh, there's an organizing magic in progressive campaigns that is really the, the way forward for our country. 
Uh, and what I mean by that specifically is that we as organizers have gone out and we've knocked uh, tens of thousands of doors. We've had conversations uh, with everyday people all across the country. And when you go out and you're actually at uh, folks' doors, you're able to, to listen, uh, you're able to elevate the stories of working people. And in the elevation of those stories, you're actually able to also figure out what the solutions are. Uh, how people are struggling, how people are frustrated. And so when uh, a lot of top pundits in this country are, are, are uh, from an ivory tower trying to analyze what is going on uh, in the country, uh, what I see as, as an organizer and as a progressive organizer is a lot of people have lost touch uh, with the ground. And I think that that's the, the biggest threat that we have right now uh, to our democracy uh, is the fact that that a lot of, uh, a lot of campaigns are coming in, they're running uh, cookie cutter, uh, formulaic models that's, that's based upon uh, easy uh, getting corporate donations. And then they run some type of media campaign uh, with mailers and, and, and television. And I'm not saying that all that is bad, but what I'm saying is, is that it is, it is, it is crucially important that we are, uh, that we're talking to voters, that we're meeting folks where they're at, because I think ultimately that's a long-term winning strategy uh, for, for all Americans, particularly in when it comes to working class policy. Oh, I would agree with you 100%. I think in the short term, the challenges I've heard from a number of progressive candidates who do not take corporate PAC money is that you still have to spend a lot of time trying to bring in money from other sources in order to be competitive, to be able to put the ads up on social media or television or whatever it is. Um, and so it does, do you feel, I mean, I, I, look, I, I salute your, your idealism and, and I wish everybody was not taking corporate PAC money, but how do you make up the difference when you're running against somebody who is? Absolutely. I mean, the, the great thing about this campaign is that up until uh, recently and, and continuing now, we have to see what the end of June numbers look like. But I actually, in the first quarter, managed to outraise uh, my Trump-backed Republican opponent. Uh, throughout the whole campaign, we've stayed within you know 10 to 20,000 neck and neck uh, with my opponent. And I think that that is a testament to the fact that we actually can uh, run campaigns that are corporate free, that are corporate PAC free without taking big donations. Uh, it requires a, a specific type of strategy, a strategy that's going after small dollar donations, a strategy that requires, unfortunately, I think that this is ridiculous, but lots and lots of call time uh, on behalf of, of the candidates. And ultimately, I think that that is the way forward. I think that we have to be really, really strict about not uh, accepting corporate donations because I think that that's our way forward. It keeps us free uh, to be able to make uh, the choices that we know are so important. What's been the reaction as you've gone around door to door and meeting people and you're very open about your sexual orientation, which I think is I think is wonderful. I, I always you know pray that that doesn't become an issue for people, that people just are accepting and want to know, well, what are your ideas for fixing things? How have you been received? I mean, honestly, it's been it's been wonderful. Uh, I feel like there's magic. Uh, I have gone into evangelical churches where I've been honored. Uh, I've gone into a lot of spaces that are, are traditional Republican spaces where people have been very uh, friendly and they're really they're happy to have the conversation. And I think that part of uh, the reason that they're so uh, willing to accept uh, having the conversation is that I'm not coming uh, from a space of of, of more establishment viewpoints. I'm coming from a space of really wanting to fix the system. Uh, I think that if we take a look at 
uh, a lot of people in our district, we take a look at a lot of Republicans, a lot of Republicans in my district are actually originally from the Democratic Party and they switched over uh, because they see and view the system as being broken uh, yeah. because of the corporate donations. So. Well, Derek, uh, good luck to you uh, and congratulations on how you've done so far. Derek Marshall, he is the Democratic candidate for California's new 23rd Congressional District. We will be hearing from him again, I am sure. Derek, thanks again. Awesome, thanks David, take care. Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm David Schuster. The mayor was definitely intoxicated. That was the testimony of Jason Miller, former Trump White House staffer describing Rudy Giuliani, a Trump advisor on election night. The very night when Trump campaign aides were saying, okay, Donald Trump has lost the election and told him so. And Giuliani inebriated apparently was telling Trump, no, keep fighting, declare you've won. That's just one of the sugar plums, sugar plums that has come out of the January 6th special investigative committee hearings. Joining us to talk about this is John Nichols. He's a journalist, author. He's currently the national affairs correspondent for the nation. He has a must read piece entitled Trump's coup plot relied on Giuliani's inebriated lies. <laughs> John, uh, great stuff. Were you surprised when this came out? Absolutely, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's why I'm in journalism. I like to be surprised. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I you know when Giuliani, I thought there were a lot of things that he's done over the last you know year and a half that were crazy, and whether whether where he had the news conference getting caught in the Borat scene, some of the you know things that you know when he had the hair stuff that was leaking, mm-hmm. um, and so I had suspected okay maybe he is something of a lush, maybe he does like alcohol, but the idea that on election night he would be drunk and that's who Trump is listening to, that's exactly right, and that this wasn't particularly early in the or late in the evening, right? I mean, he got to the White House at a time when everybody was there for the, you know, the initial results. And um, and you know, he was clearly arrived by all accounts uh, in an inebriated state. They tried to hustle him away from Trump. They tried to get him, they said, well, why don't you go talk to Jared, which is I think the official White House line or was the line on, on any troubled individual. So they tried to get him over to talk to Jared Kushner, but somehow Giuliani kept pushing his way up into the territory where Trump was at. According to Giuliani himself, he spoke to Trump several times. And what Giuliani was saying was completely lunacy, right? It was something that he himself should have known to be totally false. And that was that you know at a certain point in the evening, you should declare victory and say that no more votes should be counted because the additional votes that would be counted might be fraudulent. Um, it was a it was a, a nuts proposal, one that uh, Trump's campaign aides, his longtime White House aides, his family members all said, that's a bad idea. Uh, and so of course, Trump turned to Giuliani and said, well, let's take notes. What happened? I mean, I'm gonna get back to the January 6th hearing, but what happened to Rudy Giuliani? I mean, he was, you know, a well-respected federal prosecutor, mayor of New York City. I mean, America's mayor with 9-11 did an admirable job in sort of holding people together with all of that. Seemed, you know, like he could have been a you know viable presidential candidate, although he didn't really do so well when he ran in 2008, I believe. But I mean, what what happened to him over the last five years? Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I don't think it's just the last five years. If I covered the presidential races that he, you know, I covered when he was playing around with presidential politics, and it was a mess. Um, he he ran lousy campaigns uh, in his later years. So there's pretty good evidence that at a certain point, um, two things happened. Number one, uh, he sort of lost the thread, i.e., getting out of New York City, which he knew well and he knew the politics of that place. Uh, he sort of fell apart. But number two 
it's clear that he is emblematic of a certain kind of politician in the Republican Party, which is that when Trump came along and sort of you know unscrewed the, the cork and, and let the crazy out, um, these folks, instead of saying, hey, that's wrong, we don't wanna go there and pushing back against it, said, oh wow, this is, this is the new politics. This is who we're gonna be. And Giuliani to a larger extent, probably than almost anyone else, uh, embraced this sort of sycophantic relationship with Trump, i.e. telling Trump what he wanted to hear and then bizarrely acting on it, which wasn't just on election night, but also in that classic senior reference where he was at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping parking lot uh, trying to shut down the, the uh, Pennsylvania results. And I almost think with Donald Trump that the hearings have provided a certain sort of glimpse that maybe people feared was there, but didn't really wanna believe it. In other words, it was news to me that so many people, the White House staff, campaign operatives were telling him on election night in the days after you've lost. This mm-hmm. isn't, you know, the numbers aren't there. And the stuff from the attorney general saying, you know, the claims of fraud are not there. And I suppose Donald Trump could have said, okay, well, if they're not there, let's just sort of take a deep breath and and see what develops, as opposed to immediately tweeting out the election was stolen. I mean, so what is it about Donald? I mean, is it that much of a psychopath, even worse than people had suspected that despite people that he relied on telling him it was over, he decides to just go and lie to the American people? I think that that you know one thing to understand is that most of these people who are around him were lifers. They're Republican Party lifers. They uh, went to Trump because he was the big guy, not because they necessarily liked him or agreed with him. And uh, that certainly refers to Barr among others. They gave Trump a lot of aid and comfort and support for as long as they could. But when it became clear that Trump wasn't going to be the dominant figure, i.e. he wasn't gonna be reelected, they became at least somewhat realistic. Trump didn't like that. And I think the, the thing to understand about Donald Trump, and I've written about him for a very long time, is that he is, has never been a politician. He has always been a businessman, a New York businessman, a deal maker. And in that game, uh, sort of shooting big, taking your chances on something that seems crazy is sometimes rewarded. And I think for Trump, that became his mentality. He transferred it into politics where it just doesn't work. I mean, ultimately it did work, I should say in 16, but ultimately it becomes sort of a disastrous circumstance. As I've said to some of my colleagues and people on the air, the January 6th hearings have been unlike most congressional hearings you will ever see. Very succinct, very pointed, it moves along. There seems to have a theme. But what have you been, what's been your reaction to the two hearings we've had so far and the way that the committee is putting all of this together? They're clearly well produced, and that's something that you know, as somebody who's covered politics for a very long time, covered Capitol Hill for a very long time, I'm actually quite happy with. The fact of the matter is, I know some people say, "Oh, well, it's too, it's too quick, it's too um, made for TV." Well, the fact of the matter is that people's government should be something that they can consume at a relatively quick and reasonable rate. And historically, congressional hearings have been long boring, every politician has to have his say or her say, and things are repeated. It's just, it doesn't get any place. Usually the first day, as you well know, David, of any sort of major set of hearings doesn't deal with the issues, right? You don't have the witnesses or anything like that. What they clearly decided to do with the January 6th committee is to cut a lot of the rigmarole out, cut a lot of the, the you know kind of bureaucracy out and get to the point 
And in doing that, they've actually produced uh, pretty gripping hearings, especially when you're hearing, getting kind of deep insights about what's going on inside the White House. Yeah, gripping for certainly everybody who's watching, everybody who's sort of following politics, it does feel very weighty, it feels heavy, it feels solemn and important. I guess the big question that I would have for for, for everybody, including you, is is this, is this breaking through in your estimation? I, mean, I think only 20 million watched the first hearing, which is about half what would normally watch a presidential state of the union. Um, it, are the hearings moving things as far as public opinion or moving public perceptions about Donald Trump? Probably not a lot. Uh, let's be honest, we are an incredibly divided country. So the hearings are gonna be very satisfactory to people who had a pretty bad impression of Trump already and now are getting more reinforced on it. Uh, they're gonna be dismissed by people who are Trump defenders. And, and we already saw that with Fox to some extent. But here's the subtlety, David. Uh, first and foremost, it is the job of members of Congress who swear an oath to the Constitution to get to the bottom of things of this sort and to do the right thing, whether you're moving a political needle or not. So in that regard, I think they're doing the right thing. But second, I do think that there's a great mass of Americans who are not engaged on a daily basis with politics, who don't obsess about it. They get the headlines, they get a little bit of it. The fact that these hearings are putting the word coup into play, that they're you know clearly identifying Trump as the center of a conspiracy, uh, that may not move everybody, but a substantial portion of Americans, I think, are going to get a, a new overlay as regards their thinking on Trump. And I do think it will ultimately do some damage to him. And I think you've also put your finger on the pulse of what's really important. That is for historical reasons. I think people will look back 30, 40, 50 years from now and be very sort of pleased and proud of how Congress handled this investigation. Perhaps in some ways, like some of us, when we look back at the old Watergate hearings in certain moments, think, wow, that was really impressive. And clearly the nation and the constitution was more important. The rule of law was more important than any any individual politics. But as far as sort of the, the, the next sort of question a lot of people have, there does seem to be a divide um, even within the committee about, and you pointed out, you know, Donald Trump at the center of a criminal conspiracy. Do you get the sense that the committee will actually make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice to sort of take this information that's essentially been teed up for them? Or I've seen some reporting that uh, even, you know, Liz Cheney is, is sort of reluctant to do that. I've, it is a huge internal debate. There is simply no question that there are two things that this committee has to do. Number one, it has to make a recommendation as regards accountability for Trump and those around him. And number two, it has to make recommendations for policy changes that might assure that this will never happen again. Uh, and on both of those issues, I can tell you from talking to committee members, there's a debate uh, on how far to go, how aggressive to go, how whether it should be a recommendation or sort of a reference that you hope the Department of Justice picks up on. But I can tell you there are members, and frankly, I even think Liz Cheney may fall into this camp, who believe that ultimately some recommendation to the Department of Justice as regards Trump is going to be necessary. Otherwise, the committee, uh, I, I think that the questions start to be asked about why the committee went to all this trouble if it was just to create a report, not to actually get us to some place. You can't say that there was a coup attempt and that the former president of the United States was at the center of a conspiracy and then at the end of the saying all this go, well, never mind. That doesn't work, I don't think. And then what kind of pressure does it put on Attorney General Merrick Garland? And what do you think ultimately he will do? Puts huge pressure on him. And I think that if there is a clear recommendation, I don't believe that he has any choice but to act upon it. Uh, it's just a question of how clear that recommendation is, whether it says specifically what he should act upon and then how he might do so. 
And of course, as you know, the way the Department of Justice works, it won't be to say immediately we're gonna prosecute. It will be to say we're opening an inquiry. Yeah, and can you imagine if you're a resident of Washington DC, you get called in for grand jury service and suddenly you're told, oh yeah, this is a referral from Congress about the president, former president of the United States being at the heart of the criminal conspiracy. Let's start reviewing the information. I mean, talk about incredible pressure on a grand jury as well. But I just get the sense that so many Americans would, at least there'd be a certain satisfaction if the Department of Justice took whatever Congress did and at least presented it to a group of ordinary citizens. In any case, John, thanks as always for doing this. John Nichols, he's the National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation, also an esteemed author. We appreciate you being on the conversation. It's an honor to be with you and a good conversation it was. And that'll do it for this show. On behalf of Asher Colfield and the entire gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.